Do you know that property values have increased 1929 since 1,000%? Do you know that this is the biggest development since Sophie Tucker? Do you know that Florida is the show spot of America and Coconut Beach is the black spot of Florida? You told me about this yesterday. I know, but I left out a comma. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. This is episode number 57. So this is Dr. Film. Hi, everyone. This is Bob Gassell. And yes, I'm back for this episode. I did not want to miss this one. I said I'd come back if something struck my fancy. And uh, this one's right in my wheelhouse. So I would not miss this for the world. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for letting me take over the reins here for this episode. Hey, Noah. Hey, Matthew. Hello. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to hear your voice, Bob. What can we do to assure people that I'm not AI, that this is actually me? Uh, well, say something only the real you would say. Okay. Um, well, I, I, I'll, I'll think of something and edit it in later. How's that? Okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly what the real you would do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what we're going to talk about today is the, the physical state of the Marx Brothers uh, film catalog. As most of you know, due to censorship, film damage, and just plain age, the current versions of several of the Marx classics are not quite what audiences saw back in the day. We've talked about and speculated about why this is, but figured it's time to bring in a real-life expert who knows the ins and outs of film preservation, restoration, archives, and all this juicy stuff. Um, Eric Grayson is no stranger to those on our Facebook group. Whenever there is a discussion or debate about the film prints, he swoops in and basically sets everyone straight, usually with the preface that the explanation is going to be long and boring. But (laughs) (laughs) it rarely is. Well, it's it's usually long, but it's never boring. So that's why he's joining us here today. So here he is, the holder of the only known print of London After Midnight, Dr. Film himself, Eric Grayson. Hey, Eric. Hi. I, I have to disavow everybody of that already because I get emails from all over the world that I have London After Midnight, and I don't have it. I really, I promise you, I don't have it. How did that rumor start? How did that come to be? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I posted a little, shall we say, joke on April Fool's one year on my blog, and people thought it was serious, and it went viral. And I thought, well, okay, that's kind of fun, and all right. And it turns out that people thought I was serious, even though it was on April Fool's Day. And (laughs) so that got around. And then also, I had the only known print of a film called The Haunted. It was a pilot made for an Outer Limits TV show. And um, that got out that I had it. And so the idea was that I am uh, hoarding stuff, and I won't let people have it. And that was not the problem. It was a it was a rights issue, mm-hmm. and so for that reason, I have the reputation of Eric is the guy that has film, and he won't tell anybody what it is. So he must have London After Midnight. And as a matter of fact, I will make a revelation about a rare Jobino Ralston film that nobody has ever seen before Ooh. on this podcast. Ooh! So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get into the meats of. Uh our discussion here. I want to talk to you about a project that you've been working on the last few years, something that is ah! totally, totally captured my imagination. <laughs> and you just show the reason why I'm so invested in this. Um, Eric is putting together a restoration of the very first sound movie serial ever made called King of the Congo. And this was produced right on the cusp of the silent sound uh, changeover. So it was done in both a silent and sound version 
Eric is trying to put the sound version back together again and has gone through hell and back trying to collect uh, the best possible quality footage of of, of all these reels, uh, you know, 50 feet here, 100 feet there, a reel here, you know, uh, some of the soundtrack here. And the trials and tribulations that he's gone through are, are so entertaining that, to be honest, I wasn't so interested in getting this uh, serial myself. But when he's finished, I am going to purchase it because you've given me so much entertainment with just the story of how you are putting this together. You know, the interesting part about that is that I gave you the cleaned up version that doesn't have any of the swear words in it. So uh, the, the actual story is a lot more colorful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've actually had to deal with uh, collectors who are anti-Semitic and made me promise that I'm not Jewish before uh, wow. they would let me have certain materials. It, it gets that weird. Wow. Uh, and, and, and it's there, there's just it, it's incredibly strange but yeah what you said is all correct this is the first sound serial uh it was recorded only on disc Mm -hmm. Uh, there were no optical prints ever made and we have about two-thirds of the audio we don't have all of it Mm -hmm. so we're having to reconstruct that hiring lip readers to to figure out what we hired lip readers from england the same people that uh did the lip reading for peter jackson uh, and they shall not grow old. And uh, we hired them, and we hired deaf people from all over the country to help us, and that still didn't help. Uh, so we're making educated guesses on some of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's um, it's been a challenge. I just found 21 more seconds the other day uh, that uh, nice. we're going to replace from 35 millimeter, and we're hoping to get it done um, in January of this year. Ah, I'm sorry, in uh, uh, <laughs> In May of this year, uh, uh, (laughs) probably by June or July, I'm actually rendering a reel of this on my computer at home while I speak to you. And I know this has been a real financial uh, pain for you, right? Oh, I'm getting rich. I'm going to move to (laughs) Barbados after this because I just have so much money. Yeah. So people could buy it in advance or is there a Kickstarter? How is this working? uh, There is a Kickstarter um, and it is now no longer available uh, because we got our goal. Um, But if you go to my website at drfilm.net, D-R-F-I-L-M dot N-E-T, drfilm.net, you can see a lot of stuff and you can email me and you'll get on the mailing list for when it actually gets released and we're hoping at this point based on all the rest that we have to do uh, maybe sometime late june or july is where it's looking at right now uh stuff's getting done it's getting closer but it's still not all there and yes there is a another piece of it in a foreign archive that i can't access Hmm. And it's a piece I need, too. So, you know, it's it's ongoing, and we're going to have to declare an end to it at some point. And, and as I mentioned on the Facebook group, it must be totally frustrating when you've spent weeks or months uh, restoring a piece, and then you come across a better quality print. Oh, yes. Uh, chapter 10, hmm. uh, which is the last chapter, I, res- I spent about three weeks restoring the first 10 minutes of it, and then... Museum of Modern Art had a clip reel, and it had all that footage in it that I'd restored. Uh, and then the most wonderful part was um, we had gotten only 16 millimeter footage, which is not great, of the the climactic section in Chapter 10. 
And um, I thought, well, okay, this is as good as we're going to get because it had been cut out and and put out for stock footage. So the the 35 millimeter master didn't exist anymore. Mm. And so I thought, well, okay, this is as good as it'll be. And then Rob Stone from Library of Congress called me as I was crawling around literally in some old theater. And he said, hey, is some of the footage you're looking for uh, Boris Karloff being shot by a gorilla? And I said, oh, yes, (laughs) send it, send it. And so there went that whole uh, two weeks of restoration on that piece, too. So, (laughs) Okay. And at what point in the process does the colorization get done? (laughs) (laughs) You know... You think of that as a joke, but again, this was Rob Stone. Somebody put that up on my Facebook page, and uh, I had joked, yeah, we're going to do that and make it in widescreen. And Rob Stone from Library of Congress said, hey, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, he thought I was serious. God bless him. He, he just didn't understand that it was a joke. Um for those who don't know, uh, Eric had, a, had his own podcast a few years ago, and I appeared on it, and we did a little back and forth on the merits of colorization. So you might want That's to That's true, that and yeah. I hope to restart my podcast at some point when I have time to breathe, uh, but I haven't had a chance to do that, so hot podcast is on pause. I think you're the only person to stop their podcast when the pandemic started. Most people, that's that's, that's when they started, but that's when you stopped. <laughs> um, I stopped... Basically, uh, in 2019, and okay. it was because I was spending all my time on this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I actually stopped pre-pandemic, believe it or not. Okay. But, uh, it was uh, it was just because I did not have time to keep going. It was it was insane. And in fact, I've got four guys working on my restoration of this film right now, mm-hmm. and uh, they're from all over the country doing this. It's it's crazy. Don't do this, guys, unless you have to. Uh, Don't ever do this. It's crazy and it's insane. And uh, unless this is your calling and you feel like it, it's a religious calling, then then stay home and do something else because it's not (laughs) worth it. (laughs) Why don't you tell us uh, your backstory? How did you get into all this, you know, restoration, collecting, the the whole schmear? Well, I got into classic films by watching the late night monster movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I absolutely adored. Uh, and I started, I, I know, watched all the Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi films and all the Universal Monster films. I loved those films. Those were great. And as I got older, I came into this the reverse way from most people. But as I got older, I realized that there were certain films I could only get on, on film. You know, I started with VHS and I started with watching television. There are certain films I could only get on film. So I got 16 millimeter. And once I got 16 millimeter, I realized that there were some films that I could only get on 35 millimeter. Hmm. So I got that. And so I just became that kind of guy. And what always attracts me to films, and this sounds strange, but I know I go after films that if I don't get them, I'll never see them. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm always looking for the weird and the obscure and stuff that, that, is not going to be found any other way. And that's mostly what I have is those kinds of films that are just the absolute super obscure ones. Uh, the common stuff I can find anywhere. I don't care. But mm-hmm. the, the bizarre stuff, I, I got to find that. So you didn't come up through the eight millimeter castle films, Blackhawk ranks like most people. I, I did not. I came no. through it the other way. And in fact, 
I kind of look down on the Castle Films films. And I right. just, you know, those are kind of... Hey, it's a portal. It's a portal for beginners, okay? Jeez. Yeah. And and by the time I was into it, I'm a little younger than some of those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time I was into it, it turns out that um, those Castle Films were becoming moot and video was taking over. So I, I just, I kind of missed that window. Hmm. So why don't you tell us about your history with the Marxes and how you became a Marx Brothers fan? The Marxes, I just loved. I started, I think my first Marx Brothers film was when they ran Animal Crackers on network TV in Mm -hmm. the late 70s. Maybe it was the early 80s, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I loved Animal Crackers and that was great. And I started watching them on late night television. And they're hilarious. I just, I love them. My, My favorite Marx Brothers is probably Chico because nobody... Nobody really cares about Chico, and he's the link between Groucho and Harpo and mm. does a lot of stuff. I think people don't appreciate his piano playing as much as they should. Just uh, a, a much better artist than people give him credit for. You know, Groucho used to to um, uh, kind of run him down, but I always love Chico. He's, mm. he's a lot of fun, and, and that's one of the reasons why Duck Soup is never going to be my favorite Marx Brothers film, because there's no piano number in it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. So I know you do a lot of screenings of classic films. Do you show many Marx films? Uh, yeah, we do when we can clear the rights for them. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, my my credo is I'm the film ho, so if there's a check, I'll go. And <laughs> so um, I, whenever somebody has a film screening, and, and I've done film screenings. I, do, I live in Indiana, so I do film screenings here a lot. I do a monthly one at Garfield Park, which is here locally. But, um, you know, I've, I've run projectors over to Kansas and to uh, uh, New York, and we ran some stuff in Cleveland a while back. And, you know, basically, I have a trunk full of 16-millimeter projectors that I use for various shows. I mean, that's, I, I like to show stuff on film because nobody shows it on film, and I also like to show stuff that you're not going to see any other way. Hmm. Well, do you have a favorite Marx film? Oh, it's Animal Crackers. Absolutely. All right. Join the crew. Yes. A wise okay. choice. Let's get, let's get into the meat of this. Um, I'm going to make some statements about the films that are in question. And when I'm done with each, you could tell me where I'm wrong or fill in the blanks or, or whatever you want. Or, or you could plead ignorance or innocence or whatever you want. Okay. Let's ignorance. With, ignorance. <laughs> let's start with humor risk. Um, the film has been considered lost for, I guess, over 100 years now. Uh, even in the 1930s, it was considered missing because Harpo uh, put out a reward in the newspapers looking for it. And unlike most other highly sought-after lost films from the era, there were hardly any prints made even back in the day. So the pool of things to look for has to be incredibly small. Uh, we don't know if there was one print, five prints, whatever. So I, I can't imagine a film having less of a chance of being found than humorous. Uh Tell me I'm wrong. Never say never. Um, I, I hate to say that there's a lot of hope, but there's some. Um, first off, uh, remember they found too much Johnson a few years ago, and that was the only print that was ever made. That was the Orson Welles film. Mm-hmm. And Orson Welles claimed that that had been destroyed in a fire, and lo and behold, it was in an Italian collection. So it's you never say never on this stuff. It it could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Roberts, who's more of an expert on uh, uh, silent comedies than I am, uh, says that this actually got a limited release. So there were probably more than just one or two prints made. There may have been four or five prints made. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and you stuff you see stuff pop up occasionally. There used to be a convention in um, Culpeper, Virginia, for a Library of Congress. It was called Mostly Lost. And what they would do is they would show clips of films that nobody knew what they were because it was missing the tail or the, the head of the film, and you couldn't identify it. And that's the kind of place where you'll find uh, humorous. If that's mm-hmm. around, that right. somebody's got it, and it's on a reel somewhere, and it's misidentified, and they don't know what it is, and you'll find it someplace. And it's that's that's the thing that I put most hope in is is that it's not a film that people are necessarily going to instantly recognise yeah. for what it is. So so there, you know, it's not like uh, London After Midnight. No, nobody could have London After Midnight and not know what it is. But it's possible somebody could have this and not know what it is. Um. It's actually possible to not know what London After Midnight was because the uh, uh, the foreign title of it was The Hypnotist, and it got changed in a bunch of stuff. Okay. And, of course, there's the famous story about Lon Chaney's film The Unknown, which was found at the Cinémathèque Francaise. Yes. And, okay, so you know that, Matthew. Uh, but in case somebody hasn't heard it, uh, they went to go see Henri Langlois, and they said, hey, uh, we heard you have a print of The Unknown. He says, well, I don't know if we have it, but it's out in the back. And there were a stack of films marked with the French word for unknown uh, back there. And it was in there. So they had just a whole bunch of stuff. They didn't know what it was. And one of them was the, the Lon Chaney, the unknown, which just got restored from a check print uh, that had 10 more minutes of footage in it. So, hmm. Well, you said you were going to break uh, some, some news here about a... Uh, yes, I do have a rare film with Jobina Ralston, who's also the star of Humorisk. And I've been hoarding it for the last 10 years. And it's Little Mickey Grogan. Not the film you thought it was. Uh, (laughs) Little Mickey Grogan is a late silent from 1927. And we didn't know who owned the copyright on it. And we found it in France. And it turns out that um, uh, Warner Brothers threatened to sue me over it. And they said, we want this, we want this, we own it. It turns out they don't own it. And they were bluffing, and they wanted me to send them all the material, which I would not do. And the guy that's there that did this is no longer there, so I can tell the story. And so the only choice I had, since we couldn't run down the owner of the copyright, was to wait until the the copyright expired, which it did in January. Mm -hmm. So I will be releasing at some point when I have some time Little Mickey Grogan, which stars Jobina Ralston, also the star of Humorisk, but it's not the film that you thought it was. But it turns out <laughs> that it's fun, and it's a nice little picture, and it will add to the mystique that I have of the guy that has films that nobody wants and, and is hoarding films. And the reason I did it was only because I did not want Warner Brothers to sue me. So without going into any more detail... Are there other things that you have where something similar applies? Yes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Without getting into your situation specifically, there must be quite a number of collectors who are holding on to rare prints these days waiting for copyrights to expire. Is that true? Yes. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> These are very good, not too many details answers. <laughs> and what is the, what, just remind me and perhaps other people, what is the time period for? Uh, 95 years, so everything. 95. Yeah, right. everything from 1927 went public domain in, um, um, in, in the January of this year. And then next year will be 1928. So. This stuff always confuses me because remember, it's a wonderful life. How everyone thought that was in public domain, and then they were able to, you know, backdoor copyright it by saying the story or the postcard it was based on was copyrighted. And with the Marxists, even though the films themselves may have fallen in the public domain, what about the songs? What about the music? And you know, in the case of Coconuts, Animal Crackers, and uh, uh, even Room Service, what about the, the play scripts? Uh, are those separate copyright issues? I mean, what's the deal here? Well, that's a great question, and we could spend three hours talking about just that. The answer to your question is, I think John Marsalis, the uh, film historian, said this the right way. He says, if you have enough money, you can go to prove, court and prove that any film is public domain, and if you have enough money, you can go to court and prove any film is copyrighted. So you can do either way. You can show it's copyrighted, you can show it's not. And if you just have enough money, you can pursue that as much as you like. The rights for the Marx Brothers films will expire at some point. Uh, they're going to start in two years with Coconuts. And yes, the uh, Kaufman estate can, can say that they still own that stuff. And if they say that... Let's see. I don't remember when Kaufman died, but it's life plus 50 mm -hmm. for Kaufman. And Riskind, Riskind is co-author on that, I think. Riskind lived longer, so that's life plus 50 for him. And then Irving Berlin did the songs for that, and that's life plus 50 for him. And he outlived all of them. So you could claim that, but then there's also a court case that says if you simply exhibit the film as it is and there are no copyrights and you have not added or changed anything to it then what you can do is exhibit it that way and mm. then you can argue about that too um it depends on who you talk to and what's going on and all that stuff but my guess is that at some point they're going to just put that out and say hey fun or you can just go on internet archive where it's already there anyways <laughs> Do you get the feeling, as somebody with their ear to the ground on this stuff, that as we edge towards now um, the the expiry date of films that actually do have resale value, like, for instance, the Universal Monster films, which are only a few years away now, that studios are going to give this up without a fight? Or do you think they're, they're, getting, they're getting their case together and it's actually not going to happen? That's a good question. Um... I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but there are a couple of things that are in play. The last time this happened was about 20 years ago when Disney bribed Sony Bono. Oh, wait, did I say bribe? Oh, yeah, I meant to say that. <laughs> uh, they, Disney bribed Sony Bono for the Copyright Extension Act for another 20 years. Disney, uh, I know you guys hate to be in politics, but unfortunately I have to mention some politics here. Disney's in a world of hurt right now because of what's happening with Ron DeSantis and all that stuff. And their legal team is tied up fighting DeSantis and what's going on there. And I don't think they're going to be able to 
to muster a lot more um, arguments legally to extend copyright. And as far as I know, there's not another copyright extension. Now, isn't Mickey and Steamboat Willie coming up for Mickey and Steamboat Willie will come up next year. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. And again, I'm going to try and keep this minimum political, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Um, It used to be a Republican issue that the Republicans being pro business, uh, we're going to try and extend copyrights. But there was actually a bill last year that was put forward from the Democrats who are trying to thwart the Republicans now that had a copyright extension in it. And that got voted down. So mm-hmm. it's mostly a game of one-upsmanship and who's saying what and who's doing what. So it used to be a Republican issue. Now it's a Democrat issue. And we really don't know how this is all going to shake out. And this is why I'm pretty much a nonpartisan, I hate all of them kind of guy because mm-hmm. it's just idiotic. But that's just my opinion. I've heard the point made that it used to be that the most uh, moneyed and powerful companies and entities wanted copyright protection expanded because these were their assets that they could make money on. Um, But that there's been this dramatic change where now the most powerful and moneyed entities are media companies like Google that actually benefit more from things being in the public domain and therefore in their archives and, and available through their portals. Does that sound right to you, or are people who say that um, just making a, an empty observation? Uh, no, they're not making an empty observation at all. And in fact, one of the things that you need to watch is the lawsuit. There's a massive lawsuit right now that's happening about archive.org, which mm-hmm. is basically a huge unsupervised dumping ground of anything that anybody seems to want to put up. And it's a very strange thing the way they're putting it together because the the media companies like Google want archive.org to keep going and the studios want archive.org to be shut down. And the way that shakes out is going to shape the next several years of, of copyright stuff. And I don't know how it's going to shake out. It's It's... It's interesting. I've been watching it, and I don't know how it's going to work. Uh, They lost the first round of it. Uh, Archive.org lost the first round of it, but it's been appealed, and it may change somewhere, somehow down the the, the pike. You've got to realize, and this is one of the reasons why I I have to be kind of snarky about all this, and I hate to be that way, because there's this idea that film collectors are always about, oh, I have a secret, and oh, I'm, I'm keeping this from you, and I'm doing all this because I, I'm just in this secret club. I don't like secrets. I like to make movies available. I like to share movies. But mm. you've got to realize that when it comes down to brass tacks, these archives and these studios are run by people, okay? And they have certain things that they, they feel that this is important. And one of the things that you find with the archives and the studios is, this is mine. I own this. This is ours. This is my property. I don't want to let it out. And the archives feel that way and the studios feel that way. Okay? So what I, as a collector, a a guy that's restoring films, have to say is, look, okay, guys, I appreciate this. I know what you're doing. I understand that this is your property. But at some point, 
nobody's going to do anything with this and it won't be available at all unless somebody like me jumps in. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be very careful because I have to make sure that I'm not offending an archive. I'm not offending a studio. I'm not offending anybody else on this because they're, they've all got that finger in the pie saying, this is mine. This is mine. And it's not a corporate thing. It's a, it's a, it's a feeling human thing. We got to worry about that because what we're doing is more treading on people's feelings studios feelings studio heads feelings than we are with this is what the law is and they will twist the law and they will twist the rules if you offend them so you have to be very careful that you don't offend them hmm. okay why don't we move on to uh the coconuts um the print that we have today is obviously cobbled together from several different sources and yeah a lot of it looks pristine it looks great on the new blu-ray but much of the film big chunks obviously come from like third or fourth generation dupes. So this isn't a matter of finding lost footage like the other ones, but we're looking to upgrade the uh, material which already exists. I'm guessing this must be tough when dealing with foreign archives and people in different languages because they can't just simply check the length of their print. They have to actually go in and look at it and report back on the quality. So that, that that's got to make things even tougher, Right. Yeah, uh, these films, the Marx Brothers films, especially the early ones, didn't go to a lot of foreign countries because their their foot their comedy is very verbal, right. and it doesn't translate well. Uh, so there are shortened versions of it that appeared in other countries where they just cut out stuff that they didn't think was going to sell. There yeah. are longer versions of it uh, that had local acts. Laurel and Hardy were particularly fond of that, where they would have somebody in, in a local Spanish act cut into things. So what's actually out there, we don't know. And a lot of it's under different titles, and we don't know. And there's there's a, a listing called FIOF, which is the Federation of Indian um, International Archives of Film. And they have a listing of stuff, but they don't know everything that's in everybody's archive. And they don't know what's in everybody's um, listings. And sometimes the the uh, listing is incomplete. So is there more Marx Brothers stuff out there? Yeah. Um, how much is there? We don't know. And how much is in good shape? We don't know. And how much have it has good track? We don't know. Here's what I do know. The problem with Coconuts was that the original negative on it was starting to go south as early as the 1940s. And Paramount duped the material, and that was going to be the only print that they had. However, fortunately, there are reels of it, and the um, UCLA archive has kindly published what they have. You can find that online if you look. But they have three reels out of five, uh, about 6,000 feet, which is about an hour of footage of coconuts. And that is the only nitrate footage of any Marx Brothers film from the Paramount era that survives. Okay? I, I want to emphasize that again. Of all of the Paramount films, the only nitrate footage that survives at all is the 35 millimeter at UCLA of the coconuts. And that has already been put back into the film. So 
what you find is that we have the 1940s dupe negative, which was done very, very poorly. And that's mixed in with the UCLA stuff, which is from original nitrate footage, which looks really good. And you have to cut back and forth from it. And that's exactly the way my print of King of the Congo looks, where you sometimes will just cut in a piece of footage. It's like, oh, my God, what is this? And mm-hmm. then you'll cut back to beautiful 35 millimeter. And that's just the way life is. Mm. Can I ask you an ignorant layman's question about archives? Because as an ignorant layman, one of the things that we find most frustrating is when things are kind of in plain view and have been there forever. So something like Animal Crackers, everybody knows that had missing bits. It wasn't like some obscure thing. The hunt had been on for that for ages. And not only did it exist, but it existed in the British Film Institute. Right. So once you've set up your archive and you've got your vaults and everything's there, what do they do all day if not go through it all and see what they've got? That's what they do. Right. <laughs> and the the problem with it is that they are chronically understaffed. Right. They are chronically underfunded. And there are people there that look at stuff and they don't necessarily know what it is. So, you know, people are always telling me, oh, well, the archives have to know all the stuff that they've got. I've got to tell you, I have a film collection that's at most being extremely liberal 5% of what the smallest archive has. And there are things in my collection. I don't know what they are. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I have stuff. I don't know what it is. Imagine what library of Congress has. They have stacks and stacks of stuff that is unlabeled and they don't know what it is. And they haven't had time to go through it. And they're, they've got two guys that are on staff that do that. That's all they do. So they go through stuff, see if it's okay see what needs to happen, and they go on from there. Mm-hmm. They've got two guys, and they've got millions of feet of nitrate film. So are there things in there that they don't? Oh, yeah. For, for example, when I got King of the Congo, which I keep coming back to because I worked on it, and I was actually at Library of Congress for this, they went through a collection that was unlabeled and uncatalogued and unarchived, and King of the Congo's 21 reels of film. It's 21 10-minute sections. And they found 47 reels of unlabeled nitrate that wasn't entirely worked out. And they, they, they had some idea of what most of it was, but they didn't hadn't looked at everything. And I had to go through that and figure out exactly what they had instead of what they thought they had and what was duplicate and what was not duplicate and what was original and what wasn't original. And that was for a film that they said they had kind of a handle on. Um, and this is not trashing them in any way because they they do the best they can, but there's only two guys that work there. If you want the archives to know better of what's, what's going on, then what you have to do is you have to fund them better, which I'm in favor of entirely, and you have to make sure that it's staffed by people who understand what films are. Uh, it happens all the time. For example, I was just reading that... Um, Warner Brothers had a bunch of stuff that had been color and they had it listed as black and white because somebody that went through the films in the archive and they saw, oh, this is black and white negative on this. Well, what it was, it was two color film. And if you know about Technicolor two color, that has frames, alternate frames uh, that are red, green, blue and like that. 
And so it looks like it's black and white negative. And if you don't know what you're looking at, you don't label it properly. So in the case of animal crackers, what happened was that the British Film Institute had a negative that they hadn't looked at. It was a duplicate negative that they used for domestic prints in England. And it was just sitting there on the shelf. And when Universal, God bless them, Universal went out and said, hey, what do you have on this? And they said, well, we've got a negative. We're not sure what's in it. Hey, can you scan that and get it to us and we'll have a look? And that's how that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the BFI didn't know what it was. And I know people at the BFI. I know people at Universal. They just, you know, they did the best they could, but they, they don't know all of what's there. And sometimes it's a surprise. So when a situation like this arises, is there a big negotiation? Is there contention? Or is the archive just glad to help out? I doubt that the archive was just glad to help out. I don't know. I wasn't part of that discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it goes back to what I said before. These are people, okay? And these are, these are institutions that are run by individuals that have emotional responses. So... If I were in charge of the BFI and I got a call from Universal, and I'm not, and I know Byrony Dixon in charge of the BFI, so I'm not trashing her or saying anything good about her. I'm just saying this is what I would do. It turns out that Universal had to call. And if you, if you call, then the first thing is say, oh, my God, I'm getting a call from a foreign studio that owns the rights to this film. What am I going to do? Because if they get really nasty, they can make an international incident of it and make a lawsuit and all that stuff. And you don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. And the American studios have a bad reputation in foreign archives that, oh, God, I don't want to deal with this. This is a mess. And so their their first thing is just, oh, no, we don't have anything. Go away. And that's, that's easy to do. And it gets you off the hook. And that's what I would do. Okay. And I've done that before. I've had to do that with Universal. Universal actually called me an evil film pirate one time because I had a film (laughs) that they didn't have. And I called them and I said, I want to license this for a showing. And they said, oh, you're an evil film pirate. You're a terrible person. I said, wait a minute. You don't even have this film. You don't have a print. You don't know where the negative is. I'm going to give you money for not doing anything. So, and they called me an evil film pirate and they said, we should sue you and all that stuff. So imagine if they did that to me, what they could do to a foreign archive. That would just really frightening. So it's really easy for them to shut that down. So to Universal's credit, they said, hey, look, we're not going to do anything. We just want to do this. We just want to get this, get this saved. What can you do? Can you help us? And the BFI was, was glad. And by the way, uh, full disclosure, the BFI helped me on some of the stuff in King of the Congo. I got They didn't have any uh, material on it, but what they did have was some um, print material, which I got. Uh, and I actually had to make an international phone call to uh, get my credit card charged, which was hilarious. But um, we won't go there. Mm-hmm. It turns out that uh, <laughs> Universal did the deal, got the, got the stuff out, and it was, it was fine. And they... Uh, were able to cobble together the complete animal crackers because of international cooperation, because inter- because Universal knew what they were doing, because BFI was, by the way, that is on my end here. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the fire siren. It, it turns out that Universal played it right. BFI played it right. It was a nice, it was a nice international cooperation, and I'm really glad that that happened because they found all that 
all that good stuff. Now, if you think about what that was, since there are no uh, nitrate prints of any of the universal, I'm sorry. <laughs> There you go. Since They're coming they, to get yeah. you, evil film pirate. Yes, yes, they, yes, they are. I forgot to tell you, we're going out live, so that's why they're. Oh, coming cool. Out. <laughs> um, since there are no nitrate prints of any of the Paramount Marx Brothers stuff, what they did was they had a safety fine grain that they had made from the original negative before Universal threw it away, and we can talk about that if you like. But Universal threw away the nitrate on that. And they kept a fine grain. And so uh, BFI had a duplicate negative. And so they had to match a fine grain safety positive with a duplicate negative. And it was one that was made with 1930 uh, recording technology. So if you listen very carefully to the restoration, you can actually hear the sound quality go down a little bit in the British yeah. parts. Uh, yeah. And it's there, but there's about as good as you can do because the bandwidth on whatever the Brits were using to copy that wasn't as good as what they had um, on the, uh, on, on, in the fifties when they made the, the prints uh, back then. So what we're seeing on the restoration is that the combination of the American print and the new British footage, or is it all from the new British print? Okay. It's all now. I don't know this for sure because yeah. I wasn't there and I didn't do it, but, to me, what it looks like is they had the uh, safety fine grain that Universal has, mm. and they merged that in with the British print whenever they whenever it went that way. And the, the okay. safety fine grain from Universal was in better shape overall, I believe. And so what you what you see is mostly Universal's print. And by the way, just to make clear. Universal bought the entire Paramount back library in about 1950 or so. Yeah. And they bought all of the, the talking films. And this is important because he, this is part of the, the rights issues with everything. They bought all of the talking films from Paramount from about 1930 until 1948. And so Universal owns those films. Paramount no longer owns them. Now, if you call Paramount and say, look, I'd like to license X, Y, and Z film, if it's a silent, they still own that, but they'll tell you they sold it to Universal, so you have to do things like that. And so Coconuts is right on the cusp of all that stuff, uh, but there are actually silent films made after Coconuts that Paramount owns that mm -hmm. Universal doesn't own. So what mm -hmm. Universal did, they thought this was only for TV use. They took all of the nitrate camera negatives and made safety fine grains from them and then threw out the, the camera negatives. Hmm. And so that's why all those, all those films are gone and that's why they aren't at the archives. And we can trash Universal for that, but Universal did that in the 50s and it was purely an economic decision because there was no possible way in the 50s to justify having flammable nitrate around. It was before the archives would even take it. Why did you want flammable nitrate around for all these old movies that nobody cares about that are from the 30s and 40s? You know, you just take them and, and you do the best they can. It's only for television. Who cares? And we'll make fine grains and we don't need the negatives anymore. So that's what survives on all of the Paramount Marx Brothers films. Hmm. And while we're on the uh, subject of animal crackers, let's talk for a moment about the famous uh, uh, 
real change snafu with Groucho getting out of the carriage and how that came to be and do you think it's a good idea that home video releases keep that in and what, what are your thoughts on that? Let me explain what this is and why this is because it's a strange thing. Um, and if you had seen this in 1930, you would not have seen him get out of the carriage twice. What happened was that they took two reels at the joining point and they put them together in the wrong way. Now, let me clarify exactly what that means. Uh, when you guys have been in school, if, if you're old enough to remember film projecting in school, you, you often had an idiot teacher who didn't know what he was doing and he would get the, he would get the projector threaded up and he would leave the countdowns on. So it was, it would, you'd show 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, beep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, the question is, why do you do that? And the reason is that when you're running 35 millimeter, which God bless you, I've done a million times, what you have to do is you have to switch over every 20 minutes or in the silent area, you have to switch over every 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you would need to get that synchronized. Well, how do you do that? Well, in, in silent films, it doesn't matter. And especially if you end on a, an inner title, you can just kind of overlap it and guess and by God and, and it'll be close and who cares. But for a sound film, the, the sound sync is, is picky. It's, it's hard to do. So what do you do? Well, you do the 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. And the, you, for 35 millimeter, you actually thread it at 7. And you get the projector going. And there's two changeover marks. There's a changeover at 10 seconds, which means that you're starting the, the projector. And then there's, a, there's one just about two seconds before the end. And that's when you switch the projectors over. So you switch back and forth. And you have the countdowns set up that way. Now, the reason I tell you this long, boring story is that that hadn't been invented in 1930 yet. Mm -hmm. um, so it, there was no way to keep those in, in perfect sync. So what do you do? Well, what you do is you end a reel on a little section that it has some action on it that isn't really important, and you wait for them to switch over, and you hope that they switch over in time. Okay, so with Groucho's scene of him getting up off of the uh, the couch or whatever it is, um, what you what he did was they said, look, let's just have an extra long section of that footage, and then they'll switch over on it, and if there's a little overlap, nobody cares, and if he's three seconds over, nobody cares, and it's fine. And that's the way Animal Crackers was put together. If you look at Lon Chaney's The Unholy Three, it's full of those. I think every real changeover is like that, uh, where the actors are just sitting still, actually, for about two or three seconds, and then they, then, then they keep going. Well, that's not a mistake. That's just the way that was going. That's the way that was transferred. When they did the video work on this back in the 80s, the guy that did that didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know any of the history about this. This is why somebody that's familiar with history of films should know about this. Mm. And so he just said, oh, okay, well, it ended here and it started here and we'll butt them up together and there we are. Well, every reel in Animal Crackers is like that. And in fact, I have a one of the, the films that was accidentally bootlegged from 
universal and the accidental early 70s that <clears throat> I don't know anything about. But God bless if you. I did know about it, what I would tell you is that that was actually bootlegged from the master positive that they had. Mm-hmm. And they f- they physically splice those sections together at the end of each reel. And there is a splice in that reel exactly when Groucho gets up twice. And there are a number of other ones in there that have some overlapping action that isn't really quite right either. So, yeah, and unfortunately, I can't take them out of the print that I accidentally don't have. Uh, and the reason I can't was that they, they printed the soundtrack separately. And so if I cut them out, then the sync doesn't match anymore. So why didn't we only notice it uh, with Groucho getting out of the carriage twice? How come we don't see those similar snafus later on in the film? Uh, it's actually in several points, but um, the 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 rest of them are not as obvious as that one is. Um, that one is a particularly glaring one. Um, if I if I really wanted to, and if you guys really want me to, I can actually go through the print of the uh, the accidental one that I had printed and we can see exactly where the real changes were because uh, it's still in the print. Uh, it's it's still there. It's just a question of, okay, well, here's where it was, but that's one of them. Okay, we'll wait. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if somebody reminds me, I'll go through it. I, I only have about a million th- other things to do, but I do have it. And I, since that's a nice print, I've actually considered having the cut footage put back in, but that's a different story. So in theory, in theory, which is more correct, the the footage on the reel it's coming from or the footage on the reel it's going to? Neither one. Okay. Neither one, because it depends on when the projectionist shut the film down and when mm. he started up the the next one. So it it just shouldn't be that way. So when editors are doing films, they do it a reel at a time. So when they get to that point, they know they have to leave leave extra on there. How does how does that work? Well, it's the negative uh, editor. So yeah, the the guy that does the the um that edits the negative yeah he has to know that okay and he has to say okay we're we're about at 2000 feet because you you do the changeovers every 2000 feet or right. in in 1930 you did it in 1000 feet uh and so yeah you just have to say okay here's near the end of a a reel and then you put a cue mark on it at those two points and there those two points are are specified by the uh, IOTC standards and you have to Make sure that you have them exactly right so the projectionist knows what to do. Here's a stupid question then. I mean, I understand why uh, the, the small reels are handy or indeed essential when you're shooting a film. But when, once it's been assembled and it's going to the projection booths, if, if we're talking about films that are kind of 90 minutes tops per se, why can't they just have one giant reel? Ah, well, they can there were a couple of reasons why they didn't. The first reason was that in the days of nitrate film, um, if you had a fire and you lost a reel, then if you had it in a thousand foot section, you only lost one reel. Yay team. Right. And your fire was smaller if you only lost a thousand foot section. But by the early thirties, when they had some of the nitrate chemistry changed a little bit, they were going to what they called double reels. And by 1937, that was the standard and the double reels are 2,000 feet, so those are bigger than the 1,000-foot 10-minute, so they were 20-minute reels by that point. By the early 70s, we had safety film, and we had a, a couple of other issues that intervened, which was, first of all, 
the movies were less profitable by the 70s, so you didn't want to have to hire those expensive projectionists. You just wanted to have, dude, like, I'm a total popcorn monkey, and I don't know, like, really what I'm doing, dude. Oh, awesome. And so you wanted to pay them as little money as possible. So what they did was they invested in what were called platter systems. And platter systems were set up so that an idiot could run them. And often it was, dude, like, I'm just, like, running the popcorn. <laughs> and so all he had to do was learn how to thread that up, and he was good to go. And the platter systems were set up so that the, the studio would ship a reel in six 2,000-foot sections, and then you would put it on a platter that was a horizontal piece, and all of them would be spliced together. So what you would do is you would hire the union projectionist on Thursday night and the union projectionist would set up the platter so that he knew what he was doing. And then they would fire the uh, the projectionist on Friday. And then the rest of the week, dude, like I'm like running popcorn and I'm like doing this. And that was what he was doing the rest of the time. So it was dude that was running the film off of a platter mm -hmm. so that they could save money. And the platters had problems jamming and all that kind of stuff. But the nice part about it was you didn't have to hire projections to do it. Um, the studios don't like platters and they use them on extended uh, uh, they use them on prints that are kind of expendable and the reason that they do that is that uh, they end up getting what's called platter batter where somebody takes up too many frames at the end of each reel and suddenly the film is shorter and um, there's a lot of damage happening because projectionists tend to be idiots especially dude ends up being a, uh, an idiot and so you you just don't want to do that in a lot of cases um, so for an archival film, they have a rule to this day that if you check out an archive print, they will not let you put it on a platter. But for about the last 30 years of film projection, they had them on platters, and uh, you could run films that way. See, I told you it was a long, boring answer. <laughs> it was long. It was it's very interesting, yeah. Boring. We'll see how much of it actually makes the show, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you have the three-minute Marx Brothers podcast. <laughs> so let's move on to uh, uh, horse feathers. Oh, oh God. Um, as we know, every <laughs> every print of horse feather is made since, I guess, the 1936 re-release exists only in a, a mutilated form due to Hayes office cuts and or a plain old mishandling. Um, I guess the last verified sighting of an uncut version was at a Marx Festival in New York in the early 70s, was a print which was lent by Susan Marx, which was never returned after the festival. Um, first of all, where did that story come from about <laughs> Susan Marx lending the, uh, lending the print? I've heard that so many times over the years, I don't even know the, the source of it or if that's actually true. Do you know that? Um, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I don't know enough about Susan Marx to, to tell you. Um, what I can tell you is a couple of things. First of all, there's an argument about whether that was actually censored or whether it's just mutilation that happened. Uh, and I don't know what that answer is either, but... Yeah, for that one scene in Thelma Todd's apartment, that, that could be true. But when you talk about the stuff with Harpo earlier in the film, which comes out in one big chunk, yeah. obviously that has to be a, a censor cut, right? Yeah, that was censorship. Um, and... Yeah, the the real question, the the stuff that's in chunks, I think was just mutilated, and I think it was just badly put together. Uh, I've seen all kinds of prints like that that were just kind of. Uh, in fact, I have a thirty-five millimeter of um, the Boogeyman Will Get You that had chunks missing from the negative, 
of the picture negative, and the sound was complete. So when they did the test print, uh, the sound didn't match with the, the picture because they hadn't taken the splices out of that. So uh, the sync didn't work anymore, and that's how I ended up with the print. It's a print that slowly drifts off sync as, as the film continues. So it's a very common thing to have little tears and rips in the negative of something. Um, and I think that is what happened with those things. The, the, the Harpo stuff that's missing, uh, yeah, it was censored. Uh, the question is, what's the chances of somebody having that? Um, the chances are not bad. Um, if Susan had that, and I don't know if she did or not, but if Susan had that, it would have been a 16 millimeter print. And 16 millimeter prints started being made in optical sound in 1931. So it's very possible that Susan had it and it was a print that was made early on and it didn't have the censorship cuts in it and it didn't have the damage. So is that possible? Yeah, it's possible that any of the other ones had it too. Um, you know, it could have been that Chico or Groucho or Zeppo even had a print. Uh, and there were probably library prints that were in circulation made of that. It's not impossible that some collector has that sitting in his basement, and it's just an old print that has been sitting around for years and years. I have a 1931 print of um, Alice in Wonderland, which is a terrible, terrible film. It's not the Paramount version. It's the, it's the Fort Lee version, uh, and I have a print of it from 1931. So is that possible that somebody has a horse feathers print? Oh, absolutely. Um, is, is it likely? Eh, you know, you never know. What's your thoughts on the version that was supposedly going around British cinemas was in the 1950s? Because Leslie Halliwell said that he, because he was running a, a specialty cinema, and he says that he got Paramount to make him a new print of each of the Paramount films, which then went went round the the English repertory cinemas, and that, that that Horse Feathers was completely uncut. It's not impossible at all. Well, wait, um, there's that book, uh, The Marx Brothers, Their World of Comedy. Um, Ellen Isles has a first or secondhand account of the footage. So that lends credence that it did exist during the 50s in, in Great Britain. If that's the case, then what happened was that when Universal threw away the nitrate on that, that they threw away the complete version. Mm -hmm. um, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um there is a, well, you guys all know Frankenstein, right? Um, Frankenstein, 1931 picture, uh, had cuts made in it for censorship. Now, what Universal did, and Universal treats its own films different than the way they, pr they treated the Paramount films. So Universal maintained camera negative on Frankenstein, and in fact, it still exists, and I've, I've held it in my hands. Um... So Universal has camera negative on, on Frankenstein. So what they did was they pulled a safety off of that. Uh, it's, it's a safety fine grain. And they said, okay, sensor cuts, and they took out the stuff that they needed. And they left the negative alone. Still hmm. there. And they changed, they cut the footage out of the, um, uh, of the, the sound negative which again is like what I was talking about with the, the boogeyman will get you where they had to conform those. So they cut the sound negative, but they didn't cut the picture negative. Mm -hmm. So when it came time to restore Frankenstein, 
They just went back to the negative and it's all there. That happened very much with also another film I was looking at with um, uh, Gene Harlow called The Iron Man, which is a Todd Browning picture. And the original negative has all the sound and all the footage in it and the, uh, the TV prints, and they did make a few TV prints, uh, have censorship cuts made on them for television. And it's got some of the, uh, shall we say, nipple slips of Gene Harlow that are kind of uh, edited out very coyly. Mm. Uh, they weren't exactly nipple slips, but they were, sh- shall we say, semi-wardrobe malfunctions. Let's just <laughs> say that. Um, so, yeah, those, those were taken out. But if you go back to the negative, they're all in there. Okay. So mm. my guess is that what Halliwell was talking about was that they had Paramount make those those prints, and they were made just prior to Universal throwing out all the stuff. And so, yeah, they probably had um, all that good stuff, and it was probably fine. And it may even have been that the mutilated section in that one scene with the ice ice picks, mm. it may have been that that was in the uh, fine grain and not in the negative. And so if they'd had that back then, it was possible that they printed those, mm. and that was fine too. So mm. is it possible that there's something in some British collector's hands or in the BFI that's that's horse feathers that's uncut? Yeah. It's possible. So it's possible then that the the unfortunate state of horse feathers is a kind of a, a legacy of this this trade that Paramount and Universal made. Because if Universal had made it themselves, they would probably have better materials. And if Paramount had held on to it, they probably would have better materials. That's absolutely correct, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Universal kept camera negatives on everything. Of So if you go back to the Universal horror films, those are all on file at Library of Congress. And they've mm-hmm. got them. Uh, and when they did the Blu-ray reissues a few years ago, they went back to camera negative on everything. So that's why those Blu-ray issues look fantastic. And all the DVD issues f- previously had been off of interpositives, uh, uh, fine grains. They didn't look as good. So the Blu-rays on the Universals are stunning because they haven't been looked at in 60 years. Uh, mm-hmm. They look fantastic. But yeah, the Paramount stuff, eh, eh, it's not as good. I guess we should clarify that when we refer to sensor cuts, we're basically talking about Hayes' office demanded uh, edits that were done for re-releases during the uh, later 30s and into the 40s, not, not the original release. And what's interesting in the case of Horse Feathers is that uh, the cuts were made for a 1936 re-release, but that re-release was supposed to be monkey business, originally supposed to be monkey business. And in fact, there are existing Hayes office notes for what they wanted cut out of that film. But I guess Paramount, for whatever reason, changed their mind and decided to re-release Horse Feathers instead. So that's the one that got mutilated. So in, in an alternate universe, we we could be talking about a pristine horse feathers and a mutilated monkey business. If you get a chance to read through Hayes' notes, Mm -hmm. they're just incredibly fun to read. And and you look at it and you say, how did anybody ever make a film during this period? Mm -hmm. If you want to see some really fun notes, uh, some of the best ones, and and one of the films that caused the Hayes office to get really going and cranked up, Mm -hmm. uh, International House, the W.C. Fields picture, the Hayes office just fainted when they saw that. There's a there's a scene in it where Peggy Hopkins Joyce sits down and she says, I'm sitting on something. 
and she's sitting on a little cat and she keeps squirming around and uh, she stands up and Fields picks up the cat and he says, ah, it's a pussy. Hmm. Well, (laughs) the Hayes office just freaked out about that. And that's why International House never got reissued because they, you know, I'm sitting on a pussy. It's never going to go. Based on some of the things we've heard, I'm impressed that the Hayes office was familiar with the term. (laughs) (laughs) Very possible, yes. Yeah, and when you watch these films, sometimes it's just as curious what they don't cut as what they do, as we've talked Uh about with Animal Crackers in particular. But um, one more thing with Horse Feathers, um, there's a section of the film uh, beginning right around the end of uh, the stuff with Harpo and his dog-catching uh, truck and extending through uh, the big scene in Groucho's office with the faculty and uh, signing uh, Chico and Harpo to come to school, where the film is quite jumpy. It bounces up and down. This is not just a case of the film needing to be stabilized because the technology to do that has been around for quite a while and could be easily done. What apparently has happened here is that the negative has been stretched uh, which makes it very hard to to fix. Eric, can you elaborate on this? Okay, well, here's the long, boring answer warning again. Um, what this is, is uh, a state of what's called vinegar syndrome. And vinegar syndrome is a deterioration of the film base. And what happens with it is that the film shrinks a little bit and it shrinks as it's put on the reel. And it will change slightly with each wind. And what happens is that it's called differential shrinkage. And it's, it's all kinds of fun. But um, the film is made of cellulose acetate. And acetate is vinegar. And it turns out uh, acetate is, is related to acetic acid. I should say that. So as the film ages in a hot human environment, which is what those all are, a lot of times the print, the film will deteriorate and shrink a little bit, shrinks a little bit more on each one, and it will let out vinegar. And when that happens, your, your print smells like a rancid salad. And I have to tell you, I've had that happen to me. I, I had a beautiful print of Empire Strikes Back that just died. So, so, so for Disney folks... I don't have it anymore because it (laughs) shrank and died, okay? So don't come after me because I don't have it. Okay. Anyway, I had a beautiful print that shrank and died, okay? It was was really sad, and it would never run again, and you just cried when you tried to to look at it. Um, So that's what's happening with that one reel of horse feathers. It's gone vinegar. It wasn't treated well at the lab probably when it was developed. And uh, this is called warpage or film warp when it happens. There's a great example that you can see uh, on uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is the 1934 Hitchcock film. There's a little piece on YouTube called The Film That Warped Too Much. And they had a safety print of Man Who Knew Too Much that was shrunken exactly the same way Horse Feathers is. And it was no longer watchable. It was much worse than what Horse Feathers is because what would happen is that the focus would kind of breathe a little bit and come in and out, and you'd find that um, it wasn't stable and it was just kind of 
up and down and, and stretching and looked weird. Well, about a decade ago when they did that stuff uh, for Animal Crackers and all the other Marx Brothers films, that, that box set that you've seen, there did not exist technology to do that, to fix that. In the last few years, there's a German software company called Diamant, or Diamant, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And I spec this out. It's $21,000, and it's just new in the last few years. And they have a, a piece of software in there that will let you frame by frame say, this point is the same as this point is the same as this point, and you can go on to the next frame. And after a while, the AI kicks in, the artificial intelligence kicks in, and it says, okay, I think I understand what this is. And it will stretch and warp the image in the opposite direction to where it was. And it will end up taking the warp out. Uh, and it does that very well. You can see that if you look at, uh, it's called The Film That Warped Too Much. And you can find that on YouTube. And I recommend that you see it. Hmm. And I have not been able to afford to do this with uh, King of the Congo yet. But I have a guy that has a copy of Diamond. And uh, we haven't needed to use it. There's one little section that I don't think is bad enough to merit using it. But uh, hmm. for the most part, yeah. And now I, I also did the restoration for Colleen Moore's Little Orphan Annie a few years ago. And that has some, some scenes in it that if I went back and did it again, uh, that's got some warp in it that I'd like to take out. So if somebody wants to invest in Diamant and restore that one scene of uh, horse feathers, that can be done now. It couldn't be done back when they did it, but it can be done now. I'm guessing it's going to take the discovery of uh, lost footage for them to even want to go back and revisit horse feathers. So it, it might be a while. Well, remember, the other problem was, now that it's going public domain, then you got a problem there too. Yeah. yeah. So let's move on here. Uh, monkey business and duck soup. Do we have anything here? Uh, looks to me like the prints we have are pretty complete uh, from the original release. I forgot where I read it. Uh, and you guys will know more about this than I do because you keep up with this more than I do. But there's a Marx Brothers website that talks about an alternate version of Duck Soup that they saw on TV in Canada in the, in the 50s, or maybe it was the 60s, that has some different line readings in it and stuff like that. Um, and there's a, an argument about whether this is bogus or not. Um, I happen to believe it's not bogus. And so if somebody looks up the, there is a Marx Brothers website that talks about this and I forget where it is, but if somebody looks that up, my opinion on this is that it's definitely not bogus. And there's every evidence in the world that there were different shots and different line readings of duck soup and probably somebody just had a, a tv print that was made from one of the alternates and they got that hmm. so uh that's entirely possible uh again this has happened to me a few times um there are two different prints of things to come the 1936 picture that uh got printed for television and it, that was a film that was public domain and now is no longer um, so it used to be that there were all kinds of prints of that that were made. And it turns out that the, the one cut was shorter than the second cut, but it had footage in it that the other one didn't have. So I ended up with two prints of it, and I combined to make one that was about three minutes longer than anybody else had. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's one of the films that I've had in my collection that, that people can see. Oh, you have the long version of, 
of things to come, which is, you know, kind of like saying I have the, the long, boring version of Barry Lyndon, which is, okay, well, it's not really something to brag about, but um, but I had it. So. My grandfather worked on the special effects for things to come. The special effects for that are really good. The, the problem with things to come is not the direction, it's not the photography, it's not the uh, acting, which is all top-notch. The problem with things to come is that H.G. Wells could not write a screenplay to save his life. Uh, and uh, the movie is slow and dull because of it. So you have a long version of things to come. It's like, okay, I'm making a longer version of a dull film. Okay. Okay, why don't we move on to uh, A Night at the Opera? As most of us know, the version in circulation today has all the references to the first part of the movie taking place in Italy. Uh, those have been removed, including a big musical number at the top. Um, other than that, it's just individual lines here and there. For decades, people assumed that these cuts were done during World War II when Italy joined forces with the Axis powers. But uh, I guess recent research, including the uh, finding of contemporary Hayes office letters, indicate that MGM likely made these cuts around 1937, soon after the original release. And these were done in order to appease Italy, actually, who thought that the film made Italians look foolish. Uh, never mind Chico. There's not much you could do about him. But uh, I guess Mussolini was behind all this. Um, about 20 years ago, Mark's fan and past podcast guest uh, Tom Raz viewed the first couple of reels of uh, a print in the Hungarian Film Archive and claims that while it's not 100% complete, it did contain lines that we know had been cut. But uh, there seems to have been no further verification or movement on this. Uh, Warner Brothers, the current uh, rights holder to A Night at the Opera, has shown no real interest in acquiring the print or putting it out. So that's where we stand. Um, you know, it's strange that MGM even allowed this to happen in the first place because they seem to have been the kind of studio that is so particular with their catalog and, and assets that they shouldn't have allowed this to happen in the first place. Well, this is where I have to be a little cagey. Okay. And I'm going to apologize in advance, but here we go. There is a print in the Hungarian archive. Hmm. Now, remember I have said many times that these films, these are owned by people, and there are hurt feelings that happen. Warner Brothers knows about this, but they don't care. Now, when you say Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers now owns the MGM library because they inherited it from Ted Turner, and Ted Turner bought the MGM library in 1986, and they have had it ever since. So Warner Brothers owns the film now, and Warner Brothers is in, uh, shall we say, a bit of a, a hissy fit at this time. And the reason for that is that they've got a, a guy that's in charge that's a bottom liner, and he's trying to make sure that they make as much money as possible on every single film. And so the back catalog of Warner Brothers stuff means absolutely nothing to them. They don't care because they're not going to make money. They can make Batman 3D, the next generation, and make a lot more money on it than they can on a reissue of Night at the Opera. Okay. So, that being said, how else can you deal with this? Well, the archives know that one guy has what and one guy has another, and okay, fine. 
still, you have to deal with the fact that the Hungarian archive looks at this and says, oh, my God, it's I don't want to get Warner Brothers upset because uh, and what is this film? Uh, and OK, and another archive in the States wants this. And uh, why is this? And what is this film? And, and is it worth something? And does anybody care? And, and, and should I get something out of this? And I, I don't know. And so, and remember, this isn't his job at the Hungarian archive. This is not what he's trying to do. And so he's looking at this and he's kind of wondering what happens. And there's a movement in force from the archive community, not Warner Brothers, to get this expatriated and see what can happen. Now, have we gotten any further verification on this print? Because Tom, you know, God bless him, he was basically just working from memory when he viewed it. Uh, do we know for sure that this print contains footage that has been uh, supposedly lost? Uh, it, it does. It, it does. And people have seen it. And I've talked to archive people who've seen it, and I can't tell you who. And it's not because I'm being a jackass, even though I am a jackass. Uh, it's not because I'm being a jackass. It's because I can't say. But archive people have seen it. Okay. Uh, and it has been looked at. They've seen all of it now. Because Tom only saw the first reel, I think. Yes. And what I've been told, I haven't seen it. I'm, what I'm telling you is third hand. But what I've been told is that there is footage, and it's not spectacular. Okay? So mm -hmm. it exists. It's not spectacular. It's not going to stop your heart. Like, you know, the missing fr footage from Animal Crackers was great. Mm -hmm. uh, that, some of that was nearly heart-stopping. That was like, wow, I've never seen this. This is wonderful. The missing footage from A Night at the Opera, I'm, I'm told, is interesting, but not really that much. And the, apparently the musical number that's at the beginning was not there, mm -hmm. but it, the Marx Brothers footage was there. And again, I'm not saying this is true, but that's what I've been told. Now, when I was on the Marx Brothers Council, I said, please leave this alone and don't say anything about it. And I got a lot of people that were harassing me about this saying, oh, well, you're just know all this special stuff and you're not sharing and all that stuff. Okay. I want this to be shown as much as you guys do. And there are a number of films, some of which I still can't tell you about that I know are in foreign archives that we're working on. And some of them I'm working on and some of them archives are working on. But the worst thing you can do, I mean this, the worst thing you can do is be an American, a loud, obnoxious American that goes over to a foreign archive that they don't speak English, they don't know what's going on, and they're talking about a copyrighted film, and it's just, oh my God, what is this? I don't know. So mm -hmm. I recommend that you don't do that because mm -hmm. all you're going to do is you're going to make the, the guys in Hungary paranoid, and you're going to make the, uh, you're, you're going to do not the right thing as far as the preservation goes because this, this film needs to be preserved, okay? It really does. There's no question. Even if the footage is not spectacular, I want to see it. You guys want to see it, okay? Yeah. But if I'm speaking in terms of film preservation and what the right thing to do is, leave them alone because something is happening. 
What has always gotten me about this when you mention how Warner's has not been actively engaged in this, we're not just talking about some random catalog title. We're talking about a film that's usually in the list of the 100 greatest films of all time or the great comedies of all time. So they're top 10 often. Yeah, they should be more vested, I would think, because of that. I'm going to break character a little bit here and say that my opinion of Warner Brothers and their preservation team right now, well, their preservation team is fine. But their marketing of classic films is, Mm -hmm. okay, that's just my opinion. You guys might disagree with me. Is there usually a conflict between what the restoration team wants to do and what the studio wants to put out? Oh, oh, hell yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because the restoration team wants to restore stuff and get it going. And Mm -hmm. the marketing team says, oh, who cares about this stuff? I don't care. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there's now, now Warner's to their credit has put out a lot of stuff that, that a lot of studios haven't, you know, if you want, if you want me to get really hostile about stuff, Paramount doesn't do anything that they should do with a lot of their back catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, Universal doesn't do enough. There's all kinds of beautiful James Whale pictures that they should just be all over and get out and they don't do it. Uh, Paramount has silence that they, they have in their catalog that should be done. Okay. And, Warner Brothers, to their credit, does do stuff like that, but they don't do enough. And some of the big titles, that they just, oh, come on. Night at the mm-hmm. Opera should be another one. And I'll tell you, the, the unknown that just got done uh, this year, people knew about that for years and years, and I didn't say anything about it, but I knew about it, and I knew that there was a print in the Czech archive. They had to wait until the film went out of copyright because Warner Brothers didn't give a damn about it. Okay, so now there's a restoration and God bless George Eastman House and the Czech archive for doing it. They they needed to. It was wonderful. But Warners didn't care. It needed to be done. This is one of the the great films ever uh, in the silent era. And there's a there's another movie that everybody knows. And I get an email about this about twice a year. Mm -hmm. Um, Why don't you do the color restoration? Because I'm known for color restorations. Why don't you do the color restoration for The Mysterious Island, which is a 1929 silent with Lionel Barrymore. And there's a color version of it that exists, and I think it's the Czech Archive. And George Eastman Museum has material on it that's the, I believe it's the MGM black and white version. And Warner doesn't care about that either. This is a major film. It's a two-color tech feature in sound from 1929 with Lionel Barrymore with great special effects done by Benjamin Christensen, who's one of the great silent directors, and they're not doing it. Okay? I think they should be all over this. This film does not exist in color, and and they've got a color print of it at at the, at the archive. I think it's the Czech archive. Don't quote me on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this, this needs to be done. So when you're telling me about this and you're telling me about night at the opera yeah i mean this this should be done Uh, and why aren't they doing it because it's too much work uh because nobody particularly cares uh and they don't think they can make their money off of it and part of it i got to tell you is on the fans because they don't buy enough discs so if you want to support film preservation go out and buy some discs you know tell people i want to see this if you want to see night at the opera your best bet is to write Warner's and say, hey, look, I want to do this. I want to see it. Because Warner's, if they get off their butt, they'll, then they'll do it. Because uh, that'll make it happen. Otherwise, it's, it's going to have to wait 
until the film's copyright expires and an archive can do a deal because at that point uh, all the rights are off and they can make it work. But until hmm. then, your best answer is to talk to Warner Brothers and see if they'll they'll make it. And I don't think under Zaslav, who's the guy that's at Warner's now, I don't think Zaslav cares. But if you can make him care, <laughs> that's your best bet. Otherwise, the uh, the smart thing is to smile and know that people are interested in this and going on. And the my niche in this is to do stuff that nobody else is going to do. And this isn't one that I'm concerned about because somebody else is going to do this one. So if, if you want me to restore something, don't ask me to restore Night at the Opera because I can't. Uh, maybe someday I can restore Mysterious Island, but um, Night at the Opera is going to be for the big boys and it's going to happen. It's just a question of when. Now, can you talk a little bit about how this came to be in the first place? As I said, MGM seems to be so anal that it's surprising that they would let this happen. MGM was anal about film preservation only starting in the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, and people don't re remember that. And part of the reason why they became anal about it was that a lot of their film it was sitting in the vaults and rotting. In fact, some of the early Laurel and Hardys were sitting in the vaults and rotting, and they had the negatives there, and they weren't, they weren't preserved. Mm -hmm. And so MGM had its own lab in-house. And so some guy there wisely said, let's just copy everything. And that's what they did. They copied everything that they could starting in the early 60s. Well, they didn't get to London after midnight in time, and they didn't get to a couple of Laurel and Hardys in time. Uh, but by the time MGM became really preservation-oriented, the cuts were already made in Night at the Opera, so that was already a done deal. It's just so strange that they would do that to the original negative to make these, make these cuts. It happens all the time. Hmm. It's just really, really common. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And from what I'm told, the changes are not all that substantial. Right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, just don't expect something wonderful, great, great gee whiz. This is wonderful. It's, it's just kind of subtle is, is what I'm being told. You can see what they are from the scripts. The, the scripts map yeah. up to the little, the little yeah. jumps. So it, it is just a few things. But, right. you know, there's a couple of jokes there and, you know. Yeah. Joe Adamson has mentioned a couple of times that he's heard rumors of collectors having complete uncut prints in, in their private collections. So who knows what's out there? It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, there, there were a number of times that this, this was printed. Um, uh, Joe Adamson is a great guy, and I have absolutely no reason to doubt anything he has to say. There are a lot of collectors who don't want to deal with Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. um, I try not to be one of them, but I kind of lean that way. There is uh, a collector who has a print of A Star is Born, which is the uh, Judy Garland version. And apparently that is complete in a private collection, and the guy doesn't want to deal with Warners on it. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard it a number of times from a number of people, so my guess is it probably is true. So, yeah, those things are out there. And it's really hard for a studio to do negotiations with people because you get really and as a collector i get this way too they're an 800 pound gorilla so you got to treat them with kid gloves and you have to say okay well yeah i have this and yeah i'm happy to work with you but i don't want you to sue me because even the act of being sued by a particular studio is going to get you in trouble because i have to have enough money to put on a defense and even mm -hmm. if i win 
uh, it's going to cost me thousands of dollars to to defend that, and it's just not worth it. So if a studio threatens to sue me, I'm going to fold real quick because I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be involved, and that's what that's what uh, apparently this collector has done before. Now I have contacted Universal a number of times and said, "Hey." Um, sometimes the flip side of that happens too. Um, I contacted Universal a few years ago. I have a print of Life Returns, which is a 1934 film that never got copyrighted. And Universal lost a lawsuit on that in 1935. And they didn't want me to to give them this film because they said, oh, my God, we lost a lawsuit on this 80 years ago. Oh, oh, oh no, no, no. Uh, I don't even want it on the lot. Okay. <laughs> so it's a Universal horror film. No, no, no. We don't want it. We don't want it. Keep it. Hmm. Okay. So yeah. legal stuff and and. This kind of thing is really important to this this business. So when it comes to physical issues with the Marx Brothers films, I guess we're about done at a night at the opera. Everything following seems to be complete and intact. Um, in fact, for a couple of films, uh, Room Service and Love Happy, we actually have two circulating versions. Um, Room Service has an alternate song on the uh, UK version and Love Happy um, and the recent Blu-ray has a uh, has a totally different edit. Um, I guess it's from a preview version. But other than that, is there any other issue with Mark's film that we should be aware of? Uh, well, I can tell you, uh, I did some research at Library of Congress, and I have a buddy there that works for them. And he looked through the list, and he looked through the FIOF listings. And I can tell you that George Eastman Museum has original nitrate camera negatives on the big store and go west so those still survive yeah i know not the best ones (laughs) and they used to have uh, a composite fine grain of love happy Mm -hmm. but that went to paramount in about 2001 he says so Mm -hmm. all the master materials on love happy are at paramount right now and paramount owns that they also have the original negative of Night in Casablanca that's part of the Castle Hill mm-hmm. collection. So mm-hmm. they've got material on that too. So that survives, and those are, those are out there. And that's part of the reason why those films look so nice now. So what can you tell us about the availability of trailers to the Marx Brothers films? Um, I think we have m- most of them. Uh, I'll tell you one that I'd love to see is the original trailer for A Night at the Opera, there is one that we've all seen in circulation, but that's that's from a re-release. And uh, I just would love to see the original trailer and see how this new direction that the Marxists were taking was first presented to the uh, contemporary audiences. That's a, an interesting point. There was, a, there was a place called National Screen Service mm-hmm. that used to make all the trailers back mm-hmm. in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And what you would do is you would send them a print and then they would make a trailer for you. And then when that was done, they would throw it out. Hmm. And so National Screen Service, I believe, worked for MGM. I could be wrong on that. But it's very rare to find uh, a good print of that because they didn't keep them. They didn't care. Mm -hmm. Trailers were the Mm -hmm. ultimate expendable. I mean, the the first thing that you expend is the – the trailers, the next thing that you get rid of is the cartoons, and the next thing you get rid of is the serial chapters. And then after that, you try and keep the features. Mm-hmm. So all those films are really in trouble. You know, what's really fascinating about this existing Night at the Opera trailer is that even though it's from a re-release, it contains footage that's not in the original film. 
right. including the uh, MGM lion gag at the beginning, and there's shots of this big parade, which never made it into the finished film. So whenever this was made, the uh, elements for the movie were still in existence, apparently. Right. And the purges started happening in the late 50s, early 60s, and that was about mm-hmm. the time that that reissue, I think that reissue is from 1952, if, I may, if I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that material was still there at the time. Um, Universal just, I'm sorry, MGM just basically ran out of space. Uh, and that's just really what they did. Uh, and they said, okay, we've got to get rid of a lot of this material. A lot of the stuff that they were doing, um, they transferred, the, the optical tracks were transferred to quarter-inch tape to save mm-hmm. space. Um, they also did something, MGM was notorious for taking silent films, and they, if they had an inner title in them, they would cut the, the film down to one frame, the, the, the title down to one frame, so they could stretch it out again in the lab. Mm-hmm. So if you find a, a new print, from a, an MGM film, a lot of times it has a really icky-looking title in it because that's the only frame they save from the title, and that way they could save space in the in the storage. Wow. Man, if they would just save two or three frames and loop those, it would look so much better. Uh, tell me about it. I'm, <laughs> I'm working on a Laurel and Hardy film that I can't tell you about right now, <clears throat> and I'll be able to tell you about in January 1st of 2024, and it's got that same problem in it. So... Uh, it's not hats off. It's not hats off. No. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not. It is a known print, but it's if you st- start talking about copyright disasters, the Laurel and Hardy films are pretty much there because uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure who owns the the rights on the silent Laurel and Hardys at all. But yeah, it's it's crazy. Anyway, um, to answer your question, uh, the National Screen Service trailers got pitched out a lot of times. Uh, the collectors would keep them if they could, uh, and we find uh, trailers occasionally that, that are around. I actually have a reel that I, I lend out to people that has trailers for all the bizarre Marks Brothers films on them. And mm-hmm. it's very common for a, a Marks Brothers film to have footage in the trailer that isn't in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I think... Actually, most of them probably are like that. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, Duck Soup has that. Um, Animal Crackers has that. And then, of course, the trailer for Big Store is actually better than the film because uh, <laughs> yeah. it talks about, uh, well, it just doesn't take much. That's just my editorial comment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the trailer for Big Store is all about how the Marx Brothers are retiring after this picture, and it's really interesting. Uh, it's uncommon to find this, but the nice part is that these these films were left with uh, the projectionist, and if some projectionist has has kept these, then it's not impossible at all to find that somebody will keep that. Well, they just found a trailer for uh, I think it was Ghost of Frankenstein recently that had footage that mm-hmm. didn't have uh, that didn't make the film, and somebody found that, and um, you find. Trailers once in a while. I I recently found a trailer for The Shock from 1922 with mm-hmm. Lon Chaney in it that has footage in it that's not in the film. Mm-hmm. So is this possible to find? Yeah. Is it likely? Eh, it could happen. So, mm-hmm. yeah, those, those films are out there. I have a trailer for Animal Crackers, which has some footage in it that's not in the film. 
And apparently that's one of the only other pieces of nitrate that survives on the on hmm. those because some studio has a print of uh, the trailer for Animal Crackers, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So one last thing I wanted to get into before we wrap this up. Sure. Uh, is looking forward. And I know I know we've hashed it out about colorization, so I don't really want to get into that, but about AI technology and how that could be used uh, for the benefit of the Marx Brothers films. I'm thinking uh, in particular, uh, first of all, for the coconuts, maybe you could help us sharpen up or make better that doopy footage that we talked about earlier and how AI might be able to help us recreate missing frames and missing little bits of films. What are your thoughts? And Like hopes? smoothing over the horse feathers yeah. bits. Yeah. yeah. Okay, you're, you're going to end up cutting this down to about 30 seconds, but there's a lot of answers to that and a lot of subtlety about it. Uh, first off, we're using AI already on film restoration, and mm. my job as a film restorationist is always to make sure, and this is what my, this is basically what my call is. I'm working with King of the Congo with Library of Congress, and their their goal is to not change the history, but to save the history. So we, we want to make this look as much like a print would have looked, a nice print would have looked on opening night. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's the goal. So my goal is not to make it widescreen or color or anything like that. My goal is to do that. But the problem is that you find issues that happen here that will keep that from ever looking like it did in op- on opening night. So when you're talking about horse feathers, horse feathers has a lot of sections in that splicey section that just don't look good. Uh, and they're missing not one or two frames, but probably 30 or 40 frames. Mm-hmm. And can you put those back by interpolation in AI? Yeah, you kind of can. There's a program now that lets you do that. You can actually do it as part of Adobe After Effects 2, and there are a couple of other programs that that will let you do it. And right now, the technology isn't good enough to do more than about five or six frames. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you do any more than that, then you're kind of trouble. And I don't think, for the foreseeable future, I don't think uh, you're going to be able to AI horse feathers very well. Mm -hmm. I think in the future, yeah, you can probably do it. As far as voice goes, and I've had to look into this because I'm doing some voice reconstruction on King of the Congo, too. They need about 30 hours of someone's voice in order to reconstruct the voice very well, to to get all the phonemes and all the stuff that you use in the voice. Mm -hmm. So you'd need that for Horse Feathers, too, for some of the missing lines. And I think you've got that, and I think you could probably recreate the dialogue in that easier than you could recreate the picture. As far as the doopy sections, since I'm an electrical engineer and I studied signals and systems, uh, I can really go into math on this. You guys really want to shoot me. The doopy sections of coconuts are kind of gone, but if you can find reference material that has all the contrast range in it, you can use some AI stuff to try and bring that back. There's also some ways that you can do since that's what got what's called clipping in it. And so that you understand when I have an audio signal that I turn up too loud, uh, it, it starts like this. And the reason it sounds like that 
is that the amplifier can't supply any more current at the top and at the bottom of the, the film or of the, of the audio signal. So what happens is that it clips. It actually cuts off the top wave and the bottom wave, and you get that distortion that's called clipping. If you look at it on an oscilloscope, it's actually flat up there at, this, at that point. The same thing happens on video uh, and film signals, and when they copied coconuts, what they did was they clipped it. So the whites are too white and the blacks are too black. The, the top of the signal is too, too much and the bottom of the signal is too much. They copied it very poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's clipping in horse feather, uh, in coconuts, and it turns out that material, that stuff is lost. Okay? That, that signal is lost. Now, there are various interpolations that you can do to fix that, and there's an AI program that you can use to try and bring some of that back or to mat an existing frame on top of a frame that, that's missing some detail. And the reason I bring this up is that we're actually using some of that in King of the Congo right now. So, for example, I have a scene in episode one, real one of King of the Congo. In fact, it's the very first scene in the movie. And Museum of Modern Art had a print of it in 35 millimeter that was rotted after about the first 15 seconds. And then we have the whole thing in 16 millimeter. Well, I'm using an AI program to put back the mm-hmm. detail that's in those first 15 seconds into the rest of the, the, the print. And it's not perfect. It's not great. But if you do use it judiciously, you can make it look kind of like what it's supposed to look like. And that's mm-hmm. better than what it would look like otherwise. And so that's mm-hmm. why I'm saying let's go ahead and try it. Can I ask you a question about going back to the uh, the splicey bits in horse feathers? Right. Let's just pretend that the technology was there to uh, recreate the missing visual and recreate the missing audio. So you're not talking about just restoration as such, but actually artificially recreating it. Would you have any yeah. qualms about doing that? Because it's kind of falsifying the film. I wouldn't. Some people would. You know, for example, uh, my friend James Cozart that used to work at Library of Congress was adamantly ex- uh, opposed to doing anything that would change the the film as it sat. So he used to do pre- preservations. He said it's preserved as found. So that way he's not doing anything to it. Uh, except preserving it as it was found, because he thinks he thought of that as a historical record. Okay, so if, for example, if it was missing the studio logo at the end, he wouldn't go to another print of another film that was made at the same year at the same studio and replace that. Yeah, which I would do. Mm-hmm. He thought that was not fair because he's well. We don't know that that was there. Maybe they used a custom tag, and you're you're changing history. Well, you're probably not. There's a real question about how far you go with with doing this and and you making a, a judgment call all the time. So for me, using the AI on this, and the way you would do it, and I can talk to you about that, is the way you would do it is what they're doing with uh, Harrison Ford in the new Indiana Jones movie. You'd have to create a 3D model of the situation in Horse Feathers, which you could do, and you would have to create a scanned model of 
Groucho, Chico, Harpo in that section. And you'd have to count the number of frames and the lines and the lip sync. And you'd have to re-render that uh, as a piece. And then you'd have to add film grain to it. And you could do that. You could probably do that now. It would probably cost you 3 or $4 million to do it. As you never get your money back. But you could do that now. And I would not be opposed to doing that. Uh, I would not say that this is a bad thing. A lot of people would. But you're putting it back to the way it should have been. Now, the real question that you're getting at is how much do you change when you're restoring a film and what sort of judgment calls can you make? And I don't know what those answers are. My general feeling is that I'm in the business of saving history, not changing history. But every once in a while, I have to change history in order to to do it. So, for example, there's a section in King of the Congo that I'm working on that has that somebody misloaded the camera back in 1929 and there's a ripped sprocket in it and the film jitters left, right, left, right, all the way through one of the shots. And it's a it's distracting and it's a mess. And you look at it and you say, well, okay, uh, this is the way it was. And we actually have the camera negative on that shot. And we have all the the work prints of that shot. And so the prints looked bad in 1929. And we know that. Okay. So I can change that with stabilization software. It's not warped. It's just ripped. I can change that with stabilization software. Do I change it? Uh, I don't know. It plays better if I do. The ultimate answer was I did fix it. And it looks better than it did in 1929, but I had to do that because there was dialogue in that section, and we had the sound for it, and I couldn't see the actor's lips well enough to sync the sound otherwise. So it was a question of, am I going to do this, and how do I do this, and what are the what are the ethics? And I don't know what all those are. So do we restore uh, a Mark Brothers film that way? Eh, maybe. Uh, I'm not against it. You're doing the best you can and you're, you're not doing 20 seconds. You're doing 10 seconds or five seconds. That's not bad. And you have the script, you know what you're doing. I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I think it's, I think it's probably okay. I've done that, uh, on some other things. I had a cartoon that was missing, uh, three frames in the middle of it. It was a mutton Jeff cartoon from 1921. And there was a, a section of it that was repeated two or three times, and it was a, a child crying, and he was going, wah, 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 and the, and the voice was coming out. It's a silent cartoon. The voice was coming out. You saw the picture coming up. And I knew it was missing three frames because I could actually look at the place where it was repeated and say, okay, well, it's missing these frames, and I can put this frame back, and it's repeated that way, and I can sync it up, and it looks right. Well, that's the way it looked in 1921, but if they changed that, if they had done some other thing in those three frames, I wouldn't know that. The chances are 98% that that's the way it looked in 1921, but I don't know that for certain. I'm making a judgment call, Uh, and I have to tell you that doing film restoration at all is making a judgment call. Whenever you do this, whatever you're trying to do, you're making a judgment call. You're making it look different from what it did. And there's always that question of ethics in the history. How far do you go? How far do you try and make this? And as far as Bob and I have arm wrestled about this, I think that colorizing stuff is, and I think that 
uh, making things widescreener because you're absolutely changing it beyond the scope of what it should be. But when you're talking about doing what you're doing, uh, adding stuff, I, I think it's fine. I, I think you're trying to bring it back to the way it was. And one of the other things we're trying to do is um, apparently there's some missing footage in um, Mysterious Island that we talked about earlier. And Mysterious Island, the whole film exists in black and white, but it's missing some color footage. Well, you can match the color footage to the black and white footage, and you can AI the, the color back into it based on what was already there. And you can probably replace the color in the missing scenes to the point where you couldn't even tell it was different. Hmm. Uh, I'm not against that either, because it was originally color. We have one of the two black and white records that was there to try and bring it back. I, you know, I'm not against it. Some people would be. Whatever it is, mm -hmm. you're not against it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we always combine preservation and restoration, but sometimes they diverge, mm -hmm. those, those two ideas. So, Yeah. Anyhow, before we say goodbye to you, why don't you tell us uh, a bit about uh, your website and Dr. Film and all that good stuff? You can go to my website, which is drfilm.net, D-R-F-I-L-M.net. I'll tell you the story about that. I did a TV pilot a number of years ago that was called Dr. Film because I come across as pompous and condescending in real life, and I know that, so I figured I can play that. <laughs> so I made a, a TV pilot called Dr. Film, and I tried mm -hmm. to sell it to everybody, and uh, nobody wanted to buy it. Nobody cared. So unfortunately, the thing that took off was the Facebook page, and so we talk about film preservation and restoration. So I'm mm -hmm. forever stuck with the moniker Dr. Film now, even though... It's based on a TV pilot that nobody wanted to see. So, yeah, drfilm.net. You can see my preservation work. Uh, if you click on shop, you can see I've got um, uh, several films that I've already restored, including Little Orphan Annie. And if you guys are fans of basketball, I restored the Indiana basketball classic from Milan High School, which was used as the inspiration for the movie Hoosiers. And uh, I've got um, King of the Congo coming up probably in July is what I hope. And that'll be available, too. And if you send me an email, I will put you on the list of people who want to be victimized by King of the Congo when it comes out. Uh, if you look at the Facebook page, and that's on the page, the web page, too, you can join that and talk about film preservation. And you can get on and tell me how obnoxious I am about <laughs> what I did on the Marx Brothers podcast, too. So that'll be fun, too. So all, the, all, all your trials and tribulations about King of the Congo, that's on your personal page or is that on the Dr. Film It's mostly okay. on the Dr. Film page. On, the, okay. on my personal page, I will put stuff occasionally. Um, my, my personal page is mostly for local stuff and people who know me and all that stuff. Um, but for, uh, for the Dr. Film page, it's mostly about preservation and that, that sort of thing. It's, it's different. You're welcome to friend me personally, too, and you can send me obnoxious messages. Especially, please send me messages about, I'm from Lithuania, and I want a copy of London After Midnight, and I know you really have it. Uh, that's always my favorite message to get. Okay. Now, uh, before we say goodbye, why don't we go over to Noah for a Patreon update? Sure. I can tell you that uh, postcard number five has just come back from the printer, and it'll soon be in the mailboxes of all of our subscribers at the Students of Huxley Left-Handed Moths and Fireflies Cabinet Levels. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> and it's a real thing of beauty, uh, the May postcard. It was designed by Jim Engel, a guest artist familiar to many of you. 
um, and uh, it'll be with you soon. And uh, we also uh, just want to say thank you to our subscribers at all levels for, first of all, lots of great feedback on last month's bonus episode, conversation about Matthew's essay, The Groucho Marx Theory of Creativity, uh, seems to have gone over big. And uh, anyone listening who has yet to join us on Patreon, a richer Marx Brothers Council podcast experience awaits you if you go to marxbrotherscouncilpodcast.com and click the big orange Patreon button at the top. Or if that's just not your style, you can also go to patreon.com slash Podcast and find all the information about all four subscription levels, the lowest of which is only three US dollars per month and gives you access to the page and the monthly bonus segments. And as the levels climb, we get to the postcards and other gifts that are are too beautiful even to talk about. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's pretty much that. Thank you to everyone for helping us keep the show going. And, uh, And if you've learned anything, you know, don't make Hungarian archivists paranoid. (laughs) Eric, thanks again so much for coming and as it's our tradition we're going to send it over to you for our final song I represent the captain who insists on my involving you on these conditions under which he camps here on one thing he is very strict he wants his women young and picked and as for men he won't have any tramps here as for men he won't have any tramps here there must be no tramps the men must all be very old the women warm the champagne cold it's under these conditions that he camps here (laughs) <laughs> okay, Eric, we, we got to have a little talk. Um, a <laughs> um, little background here. Eric mentioned to me during our, our pre-interview that he has never listened to our podcast. So I guess I didn't make it clear enough that when I threw it over to him for a final song that he needed to uh, pick a final song for us to play. Well, it's got to be Captain Spaulding then. Okay. 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 So we will play that. We did not mean for you to come out here and sing a song. Oh, I didn't. I didn't sing. I was talk singing. <laughs> not that you don't have a good voice, but that was not the intent. Uh, God help us if we ever have, you know, Jay Hopkins singing a song here. So we got to put a stop to this. And by the way, uh, I always use that for level checks whenever anybody has me do a podcast. And you're the only people that understand what that is. <laughs> Most people say, "What is that? I've, I've never heard it before." But you guys know what it is. Last we are to meet him, the famous Captain Spaulding, from climate hot and scalding, the captain has arrived. Hello, I must be going, I cannot stay, I came to say I must be going, I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. For my sake you must stay, if you should go away. You'll spoil the party I am throwing. I'll stay a week or two. I'll stay the summer through. But I am telling you, I must be a-going. Before you go, will you oblige us and tell us of your deeds so glowing? I'll do anything you say. In fact, I'll even stay. Good. But I must be going. Hooray for Captain Spaulding, the African explorer. Did someone call me Schnarra? Hooray, hooray, hooray. 
He went into the jungle where all the monkeys throw nuts. If I stay here, I'll go nuts. Hooray, hooray, hooray. I put all my reliance in courage and defiance and risk my life for science. Hey, hey! One day in Madagascar, he bagged a dozen weasels. Yes, and all of them had measles. Hooray, hooray, hooray! I faced a chimpanzee once, so close I felt his breath. The creature looked at me once and laughed himself to death. Hooray for Captain Spaulding! That's me! One day I caught an eagle, too big for me to tote. I changed him for a sparrow, a jackass, and a goat. Hooray for Captain Spaulding! That's me! One day a vicious monkey chased me a mile or two. I hid behind a donkey, the donkey fainted too. Hooray for Captain Spaulding! That's me! I had a guy named Tita, he lent me his repeater. I brought down a mosquito, hey, hey! Hooray for Captain Spaulding, the African explorer. The first day I arrived in Africa... Hooray for Captain Spaulding, the African explorer. Hooray, hooray, hooray. The first day I arrived in Africa... Hooray for Captain Spaulding, the African explorer. Hooray, hooray, hooray. The first day I arrived... Hooray for Captain... Fooled you that time, didn't I? The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced by Captain Spaulding, the African Explorer. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!